everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of Designated, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast series on sanctions law. My name is Brittany Crosby Boniai, and I'm an associate with Herbert Smith Freehills. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Jonathan Cross, counsel in our New York office, Loda Vandenhayden, a partner in our Brussels office, and Elizabeth Head of counsel in our London office. In this podcast series, we will discuss the latest developments in the fast-changing world of sanctions law. Each episode, we do a deep dive into a particular sanctions-related topic or event. In this mini-series, we will discuss the recent sanctions measures implemented in several jurisdictions as a response to the crisis in Ukraine throughout several podcast episodes. In this particular episode, we will focus on the recent sanctions that impact the Russian energy sector. Today, Jonathan will discuss the U.S. sanctions, Loda will discuss the EU sanctions, and Liz will discuss the U.K. sanctions. First, I'll turn it over to Jonathan to give us an update on the recent U.S. sanctions measures. Yes, thank you. Uh, So the past several weeks have seen some fairly significant and dramatic developments in terms of U.S. sanctions in relation to Russian energy. But we're not writing on a clean slate here. Before the Ukraine invasion, the U.S. uh, maintained a set of what I would describe as limited and carefully targeted energy-related sanctions with respect to Russia. To summarize those in terms of what the pre-war position was, there were and are restrictions on dealings in the new debt or equity of certain designated Russian energy companies. And so those restrict new equity investment and new extensions of credit. There were and are restrictions under Sectoral Sanctions Initiative Directive 4 on the provision of good services or assistance for an unconventional Russian energy project. So that covers uh, deep water offshore shale or Arctic oil projects uh, in which a sanctioned Russian energy has a significant interest. And that's true whether those projects are located within Russia or outside of Russia. And there are secondary sanctions under the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act applicable to new Russian energy export pipelines. So adding to that existing set of U.S. energy-related sanctions in response to the hostilities in Ukraine, we've seen incremental but substantial movement in the direction of a full-scale energy embargo. But that movement has been mitigated by concerns over the short-term impact on energy markets and concerns regarding the energy supply of key allies. And of course, here the the core issue is uh, European uh, use of Russian natural gas. And so uh, the imposition of full uh, embargo-like sanctions on the Russian energy sector would cause significant immediate short-term problems for key U.S. allies. And so as a result, we've seen a more gradual, incremental, and limited approach. But to run through the things that have been done, they're, they're ultimately quite significant. There is a ban now on exports to the United States of Russian energy products. This covers oil, uh, refined products derived from oil, liquefied natural gas, and coal. It applies only to the importation of Russian energy into the United States. And OFAC has released guidance answering the question about whether U.S. companies or U.S. persons can facilitate or assist transactions pursuant to which a country other than the U.S. is importing Russian energy. And the answer is, for the time being, yes. And so there's no prohibition on U.S. banks or U.S. energy companies being involved in, for example, European or Asian purchases of Russian energy currently. There's also a very important and and I think more impactful ban on new investment by U.S. persons in the Russian energy sector. So this is a broad prohibition on new investment, which covers debt investment, equity investment, provision of funds 
for the Russian energy sector very broadly defined. And it prohibits U.S. persons, meaning U.S. companies, people in the U.S., U.S. financial institutions from from engaging in these investments. And very importantly, they are prohibited from facilitating or assisting investments in the Russian energy sector by any person anywhere in the world. And so uh, U.S. companies cannot facilitate new investment by Asian, European or other non-U.S. entities in the Russian energy sector. Those restrictions, therefore, will have a significant impact whenever there's a U.S. party with a role in a transaction which involves an element of Russian energy investment. There are also a number of new export controls which have been imposed by the Commerce Department with respect to the provision of goods or technology to the Russian energy sector, particularly targeted at U.S. goods and equipment that would be useful in energy exploration or production. And so these restrictions cover a wide variety of goods that are subject to U.S. export control, either because of their percentage of U.S. content or because they're the direct product of certain U.S. technology. And uh, these restrictions will not have a a particularly significant short-term impact on Russian energy output, but U.S. policymakers have said that they expect the restrictions to degrade the capacities of the Russian energy sector over time as it becomes more difficult to replace goods, as it becomes more difficult to uh, to obtain uh, current and modern equipment in a variety of different uh, contexts. There have also been some quite significant U.S. non-sanctions responses, which are supply-oriented responses. The U.S. has announced a new initiative to supply uh, an additional uh, very large quantity of U.S. LNG to Europe, and so there'll be uh, increased U.S. exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe, And in addition, in in ways that have been public and in some that probably haven't been public, the U.S. seems to be doing quite a bit to promote and facilitate supply of natural gas to Europe by third country suppliers who are not Russia. So there's a a sort of across the U.S. government push to find additional uh, non-Russian energy supply for Europe, presumably in order to provide Europe with more latitude to uh, reduce its its, um, dependence on and use of Russian energy. Now, consistent with the theme that the U.S. has sought not to disrupt short-term energy markets unnecessarily, under the separate but very important and stringent banking sector restrictions that have come into effect, pursuant to which a number of Russian banks have been designated by the U.S. as blocked, have been disconnected from SWIFT and so on, there is a broad general license allowing what would otherwise be sanctioned banking transactions if they are, quote, related to energy. And so the U.S. has sought to avoid spillover effect from its financial sector sanctions in the form of those sanctions, making it impossible for U.S. allies, in essence, to import uh, Russian energy in the short term because they can't pay for the energy due to the financial sector sanctions. Also worth noting is that the U.S. has not designated under SDN blocking sanctions any significant Russian energy companies. We have seen a number of Russian banks that have been designated as SDNs. The energy sector has been treated differently. The reasons for this probably come back to the point that it's not feasible for many U.S. partners and allies to immediately curtail purchases of Russian energy and blocking sanctions applied to Russian energy companies would trigger immediate problems for European importers of energy from those companies because Russian sanctions designations under U.S. law usually carry with them a threat of secondary sanctions if you deal with the sanctioned party. So for all of those reasons, the U.S. has taken a somewhat careful approach, but but nevertheless has implemented a robust set of new energy sanctions. 
Now, Jonathan, yes. you mentioned that the U.S. hasn't imposed blocking sanctions on a lot of these energy companies, but could the blocking sanctions on the, the Russian banks impact these energy companies nonetheless? Yes, uh, and that would be particularly true if the general license were to go away, allowing transactions related to energy involving blocked banks. Whether that is a change that will occur or not remains to be seen. Uh, but for the time being, there's been a deliberate effort to carve out energy transactions from the financial sanctions. Now, in terms of, of where this may go in the future, of course, none of us has a crystal ball and the future of, of U.S. sanctions in relation to Russian energy will depend most critically on events on the ground and what happens in Ukraine. But the history of past U.S. sanctions programs offers us perhaps at least some clues as to what escalation or de-escalation of sanctions might look like. So there's one scenario in which the war is resolved on terms viewed as positive by the West. And in that context, I think there would be significant scope for relaxation of sanctions, including energy related sanctions over time. And it's hard to envision the precise form that would take, but it would be likely to happen. Conversely, if the war continues or escalates, then U.S. energy related sanctions pertaining to Russia are likely to also continue and escalate. Now, U.S. policymakers would have a variety of tools in the toolbox here. And so Past sanctions programs are not a reliable guide to what could happen, but uh, they do offer some examples. So one example of, of, of a type of approach that could be taken would be secondary sanctions for non-U.S. entities that are deemed to be operating in the energy sector of Russia. This would mirror Venezuela restrictions, which generally make it secondarily sanctionable to operate in the Venezuelan energy sector subject to general licenses which allow certain ongoing maintenance and safety activities. So sanctions of that type would have a broad chilling effect on uh, investments in the Russian energy sector or operations in that sector by non-U.S. companies. Uh, it's also possible at the more extreme end of the scale that we could see at some point secondary sanctions with respect to Russian energy purchases. And uh, assuming that would be crude and not gas, we can look to the Iran precedent before the Iran nuclear deal, before the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And during that era, the, the United States applied secondary sanctions, which threatened sanctions designation against non-U.S. financial institutions who processed payments related to Iranian crude exports. And this made it quite difficult for third countries, for non-U.S. countries to import Iranian crude because the payment mechanics were secondarily sanctionable. Now, in parallel with that very aggressive uh, secondary sanctions measure, the U.S. developed a system of granting what were called significant reduction waivers to a number of U.S. allies. India, for example, was one of them. And the basis for these waivers was that countries who could demonstrate that they were progressively reducing Iranian oil imports were eligible for a series of one-year waivers allowing continued imports as long as those imports stayed within the agreed significant reduction amount. And so this was a tool that allowed the U.S. to gradually squeeze Iranian oil off the market while having uh, the ability to, to, uh, to minimize disruption to U.S. allies who, who said that they couldn't immediately cease imports of, of Iranian oil. So without predicting that anything like that will happen with respect to Russia, that is an example of the type of, of measures that are available to U.S. policymakers should a decision be made to significantly tighten Russian energy sector uh, sanctions. Another option, which I view as probably pretty unlikely, would be SDN designations of Russian energy companies, because that is a relatively less flexible tool, and it's hard to, uh, to carve out things that you might want to carve out to allow, for example, importation of Russian energy at reduced levels by U.S. allies. 
So uh, that's a summary of what's been a very eventful few weeks in this area. Uh, I understand there have also been a number of uh, developments in the EU and UK, which my colleagues will address. Yes, Jonathan, before we move on to the next jurisdiction, I just wanted to turn back to something you said a little bit earlier about the prohibitions for U.S. persons regarding new, certain new investments in, in Russian energy. Well, could these prohibitions apply to non-U.S. persons if, for example, U.S. dollars were used in the transaction? Yes, because when we say U.S. persons can't be involved, first of all, that includes U.S. correspondent banks who typically would process a dollar transaction. Another issue for non-U.S. companies is that it is against U.S. law to cause a U.S. person to violate U.S. sanctions. And so if there is a U.S. party involved in a Russian energy investment and that involvement is not authorized by license or otherwise permissible, in principle, non-U.S. parties could face liability as well to the extent that they cause U.S. parties to do things that aren't permissible. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. And now I'll turn it over to Lode to give us an update on the recent EU sanctions measures. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks also, Jonathan. So what, what has happened in the EU, uh, in particular in relation to sanctions on the energy sector? Well, a lot, but perhaps uh, also importantly, what has not happened, the EU uh, has not adopted an oil and gas embargo against uh, Russia, as uh, the US has done. So the, the European Union and its member states and companies therein can continue to purchase oil and gas from Russia and effectively uh, do so. There has been a heated political debate on this as you may have picked up. Um, now, that political debate is is not the subject matter of this podcast, which is legal. Uh, suffice it to say on, on this point, perhaps, that one, geography and historical links are, are different for the EU compared to uh, the US and also the UK. Um, I mean, including even the physical links. Uh, uh, some of the pipelines, there's a lot of talk about new pipelines <laughs> for good reason, but uh, some of the pipelines connecting the EU uh, and Russia have been there since the times of the Soviet Union. And uh, there are obviously no such physical links uh, with the United States or with the UK, which of course results in, in a rather different situation in terms of uh, how the extent to which countries depend on uh, Russian exports. The second point, second sort of general high level point that I just wanted to make is that until relatively recently, trade with Russia and indeed with, with most, with almost any country in the world, right, was encouraged by Western governments. What we see now is, in, in my view, a little bit throwing the car into reverse pretty violently uh, and, and probably at a time that at least some of the cars were still moving forward. Um, and anyone who has done that uh, knows that at least for the car, this is not a, a pleasant experience. Now, this should not be seen as a, as a political comment for or against the sanctions. I'm just flagging that uh, because I think we one also has to look at it in a, from a perspective that's a bit wider uh, than just the last month. And that also explains uh, and, and helps people to understand the position in the EU. Now, <laughs> which sanctions has uh, the EU adopted, which, uh, by the way, are indeed very significant also in relation to the energy sector? But just before I get into that, maybe I should clarify that EU sanctions apply to EU entities, wherever they are. They also apply to action taking place on EU territory by anyone, irrespective of nationality. But EU sanctions do not apply 
to non-EU nationals acting outside EU territory. I mean, we, we get a lot of questions around this, so uh, this is something that people should uh, keep in mind, that, that the territorial scope of EU sanctions is less wide than that of US sanctions generally. Good. So the, the energy sanctions are, are what is referred to uh, in EU uh, sort of terminology as sectoral sanctions, as opposed to the asset freezes. Uh, and all these sectoral sanctions, including those on the energy sector, are contained in one regulation, 833-2014, which has now been amended very frequently over the last month and a bit, which makes uh, reading it a bit problematic. But OK, it, it is possible. Now, a, a first new uh, sanction that has been imposed or rather has been extended is an export ban on any technology used for oil and gas extraction in Russia. This was already in place since 2014, but originally it really only applied to projects uh, that would use this technology either in the Arctic or for deep sea drilling. Now, this ban uh, has been, is a general ban. None of these projects can, and this technology can still be exported to Russia. The, the precise list of products is contained in Annex 2 of this regulation 833. The main new sanction is in Article 3A. Uh, this contains a ban on any new investment uh, by EU entities in the energy sector in Russia. Also, any financing of companies active in the energy sector in Russia by EU entities and uh, the creation of any new joint ventures with any entity operating in the energy sector in Russia. So this is pretty far reaching and, and is the main new uh, sanction that has been introduced. Unfortunately, the, the geographic scope of this provision is not the clearest. It obviously applies uh, in relation to any new investment in the energy sector in Russia, but it's rather unclear whether this extends to, for instance, a joint venture with a Russian energy company outside Russia, say in Latin America or Africa. Probably it doesn't. But the wording is rather unclear and leaves scope for uh, a conclusion that it would extend even to that type of cooperation. There is no uh, European Commission guidance on, on these new provisions so far, but presumably uh, some will come out. The Commission is producing a lot of new guidance since it has or since these new sanctions have been introduced. Obviously, it takes a bit of time before that guidance comes out after a particular sanction has been imposed. And of course, they're faster for some than for others. But we would expect clarification to be forthcoming in the next few weeks on, on many of these new provisions. Another new provision of the new sanction is Article 5, which imposes a ban on any capital market assistance to three companies specifically. I should correct myself. I say it's new. It, it has it, This has also been introduced in 2014, but it has now been made stricter. It only applies, however, to three companies, namely Rosneft, Gazpromneft and Transneft. Now, and, and I say Gazpromneft, uh, that is the oil arm of Gazprom, not Gazprom, the, the, the parent company or, the, or indeed the gas arm 
of Gazprom. So these three companies, these three energy companies, have been completely excluded from uh, the EU's capital markets. And then there is a another new provision, which uh, Article 5AA, rather peculiar number, which introduces a, a very wide ban on what is referred to as any transaction. And that's what it says, any transaction with, with a number of companies that are listed in Annex 19, uh, and some of which are relevant for the, uh, or some of which are companies active in the energy sector. And these are Rosneft, Transneft and Gazpromneft, actually the same companies that I, I just mentioned in relation to Article 5. And also Softcom Flop, which is a producer manufacturer of, of oil and gas tankers. Why these four companies and not others? I have to say, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but in any event, these, these companies, there is a ban on, as I said, any transaction with these companies. But then there are a few, two exemptions for this. The first one is, unless this is strictly necessary for the purchase, import or transport of fossil fuels. Rather unclear what what that means, whether that is just a, uh, a general exception for any purchases of oil from of these companies or from these companies. If so, then probably the impact of this might be not that extensive, even though one bounds at any transaction. So um, it will be interesting to see how this is clarified and explained further. But there's also another exemption, namely for any transactions related to energy projects outside Russia in which these uh, entities concerned uh, are a minority shareholder. Now, that does mean that if if an EU entity were to be involved in an energy project outside Russia with any of these four, perhaps three energy companies, even outside the EU, that this, uh, this restriction would kick in and this transaction uh, and this project could not continue which is uh, an, 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 uh, something we've been, been asked to opine on on a few occasions uh, and which is, is in some respects quite unusual for uh, EU sanctions and also rather unclear why this uh, would be the case for only these three or what would be the justification for doing this in relation to only these three companies uh, and not any all sort of companies in the Russian energy sector. But of course, uh, the law says what it says and one will have to comply with it rather than questioning why it says what it says. That's the overview for the EU. Thanks, Lode. Now I'll turn it over to Liz to give us an update on the recent UK sanctions measures. Thanks very much, Brittany. So as, as is the case in the EU, there aren't currently any kind of broad UK restrictions on dealings in Russian oil and gas. There are, however, a range of more targeted measures which impact the energy sector. And I suppose before I run through those, it's worth saying that given the coordination between all of the jurisdictions we're talking about today, a lot of these are going to sound familiar based on some of what Jonathan and Loja have covered. That said, unhelpfully, there isn't 100% overlap between any of the different regimes. In particular, although the EU and the UK remain very similar in a lot of respects, given that the UK's sanctions regime is largely derived from the directly effective EU measures that we had here in the UK up until Brexit, 
there are differences um, and particularly with the new measures that have come in over the last few weeks. In some cases, the UK hasn't yet implemented equivalent measures or may have done so in a slightly different way. So it makes for a, a challenging compliance position for anyone trying to navigate all three regimes. I guess to start with, the similar to the EU, the UK's energy specific sanctions are broadly based on the measures that have been enforced since 2014, although those have been expanded over the recent weeks. So the first ones of those are equivalent to the, the capital markets restrictions Loda was just mentioning. There are capital markets and lending restrictions that apply to a number of state energy companies in Russia. And in common with the EU, broadly speaking, those impose restrictions on dealing with securities issued by those entities and their subsidiaries and also prohibit lending to them. It used to be the case that there was a carve out permitting dealings with UK subsidiaries of those companies, but that has been removed and the, the types of securities and the tenor of lending to which they apply has been expanded, as well as the, the scope more generally, so that those restrictions now apply to capital markets dealings and lending to any Russian entity, not just the listed ones. There, there are some limited licensing grounds available from those restrictions, but they're focused on quite specific things, so humanitarian assistance, medical goods and so on, so unlikely to have very broad relevance. Again, another EU parallel in that the UK also has trade sanctions relating to goods used in the energy industry and, and related services. Those were in force in 2014, but have been expanded again, such that what was previously a, a licensing requirement with a presumption that license wouldn't be granted for certain projects, deep water, Arctic and shale, there's now a, a blanket restriction on the supply of those goods to Russia or for use in Russia or to persons connected with Russia. Again, subject only to quite limited licensing grounds. Other than that, in the in the UK's arsenal, we have some Crimea-specific restrictions, which are relevant to energy. Again, enforced since 2014, but they include things like restrictions on the import of Crimean goods, which could include hydrocarbons, and restrictions on the supply to Crimea of infrastructure-related goods, and a prohibition on providing services relating to infrastructure in Crimea in various sectors, including energy. But otherwise, from a, a UK perspective, it's currently a case of also looking at whether any of the non-sector specific sanctions might nonetheless impact the energy sector. That could include asset freeze measures. None of the major Russian state energy companies are on the UK asset freeze list. But it's obviously important for people in the sector to continue to do their due diligence to the extent they're still operating, whether there are any kind of more minor parties, banks, transporters, intermediaries who might be on the sanctions list or otherwise owned or controlled by a designated person. There's then also a, a question of whether there's a, a kind of practical impact, irrespective of whether there's a direct sanctions issue, just given difficulties with shipping, difficulties with processing payments and so on, that are going to make not just any energy sector traffic, but any 
trade with Russia more challenging at the moment. In terms of where the UK might go next, we're waiting for a further specific UK restriction, which is going to be trade sanctions relating to equipment used in oil refining, which is something that the government has announced, but hasn't yet come into force. So is again, something much more targeted and and specific than some of the very broad energy embargo type restrictions that Jonathan was discussing. Longer term, I think there is, of course, scope for escalation and or de-escalation, depending on, on how things go. Our foreign secretary said over the weekend that sanctions are a hard lever that would only be removed following a full ceasefire and Russian withdrawal from Ukraine. And she also mentioned the possibility of snapback provisions, which were a feature of the Iran agreement. And so it it may be that there's provision for, for sanctions to come back into force very quickly in the event that we do see an easing in the kind of short to medium term. Would the UK go further and impose restrictions on the import of Russian energy? Hard, hard to say. It, it would be difficult, I think, at the moment. Russian imports currently account for something in the region of 8% of the total UK oil supply and less than 4% of gas supply. We've had an indication from the Prime Minister that UK, the UK is going to phase out oil imports from Russia by the end of 2022. And there is a task force on oil that has been established to to look at how to achieve that. I think with gas, it's at a slightly earlier stage. It's a possibility that might be looked into, but, but no real timing on the phase out of those imports. So it seems premature to, to think that a, an embargo of the sort that the US has introduced might be on the way, I think it's much more likely that we'll see a kind of step-by-step expansion in this area in line with escalations on the ground in Ukraine if, if there are further developments. Great, thanks Liz. Before we conclude, I wanted to give everyone an opportunity to provide any final observations, comments, or predictions. We can start with Jonathan if you have any final thoughts you'd like to add. Yeah, really two observations. One, I think it's important to to keep an eye on, uh, this may seem obvious, but keep an eye on the oil price. The condition of world energy markets is one of the major factors defining what U.S. policymakers are going to think they have scope to do in this area, because there's a real sensitivity to doing things which would cause a very large and politically problematic and unpopular run-up in energy prices worldwide and in the U.S., the other, the other point, further to Liz's observation about the potential conditions to uh, relax UK sanctions, is that there really aren't, I don't think the US has clearly conveyed what the conditions would be for sanctions relief. So if we are uh, fortunate enough to get to a point uh, where we're having this conversation because the situation in Ukraine has improved, we may find that one, one feature of, of sanctions as a policy tool is that I would describe it, uh, sanctions are a sticky lever meaning escalating sanctions is much easier than de-escalating them. And if we look at the market impact of sanctions and not just their black letter legal character, that's even more true because once sanctions have been relaxed, businesses with uh, long-term money to invest do not necessarily immediately rush back into what had been a sanctioned market. And so even in a best case scenario, I think it, it may take quite some time before the Russian uh, energy industry is really viewed by international partners as free of sanctions, uh, issues, and risk. 
Uh, so uh, the things we've seen happen in the last few weeks will likely reverberate for any number of years. Lodi, did you have any final thoughts you'd like to add before we conclude? Um, yes, perhaps just, just one and sort of picking up the theme that uh, Jonathan picked up, namely how are we going to potentially <laughs> at some point relax these sanctions? Because of course the sanctions that have been imposed uh, are unprecedented as, as everyone knows. The situation is also completely unprecedented because, yes, there seem to be negotiations going on, which will hopefully lead to some result. And then the question is going to arise, what happens to these sanctions? Of course, these sanctions have been imposed by the EU, which is not the party to these negotiations. But presumably, the question will arise whether if there is some sort of more or less satisfactory outcome, if that's a word one can use here, ever how this would be relaxed. And in this respect, it's important to note that these sanctions are decided unanimously by the member states and therefore would also need to be removed by the member states to a unanimous vote, which will make the decision making on this relaxation potentially even more difficult than the decision making on the imposition of these sanctions. So this may become a very interesting discussion to follow. Great. Thanks, Lode. Liz, did you have anything you wanted to add as a final thought? I think just two very, very minor points from me, because a lot of what I would have said is, is covered by the others. The first is that we are expecting, hopefully this week, the UK's energy strategy, which might give a bit of further guidance in terms of alternatives and, and the phasing out of Russian oil and gas and what that might look like, which isn't going to directly tell us what will happen with the sanctions position in the future, but it is obviously a key part of the whole context with, within which any new measures are going to be decided. The, the only other point I thought I'd mention, which is perhaps particularly relevant for any UK-only listeners who will have a narrower sanctions regime to navigate at the moment, if it's the case that there's insufficient US or, or EU nexus to, to bring those sanctions into play is that it's also going to be important for anyone looking at how to navigate all of these restrictions to also bear in mind any kind of contractual sanctions compliance requirements that they've got in place and which might go beyond whatever sanctions apply to them as a matter of, of jurisdiction. It's not uncommon for, for financing agreements or, or other contractual documents to contain sanctions compliance provisions and, and those might well or certainly might in some cases it contain some kind of requirement to comply with EU or, or US sanctions even where they don't apply on a jurisdictional basis. So in order to assess the sanctions risk for any particular transaction that's the lens through which companies are going to need, need to be looking at things, not just the, the pure restrictions that apply to them on the basis of their, their place of incorporation. So it's a complicated picture for sure. Well, thanks again for joining us, Jonathan, Lode and Liz. Jonathan, where can people find you? So uh, you go to uh, herbertsmithfreehills.com, put in my name, my bio is there. Uh, my uh, email is jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N dot cross, C-R-O-S-S, at H-S-F, harrysuefrank.com. Lode, where can people find you? In, in the same place, just so, so the website, just type in Lode, L-O-D-E. I'm not going to spell my last name or my email address. <laughs> that would take a while. Thank you. 
That's a fair point. We don't have too much time in this podcast. <laughs> Liz, where can people find you? Exactly the same place as well. I'm Elizabeth Head, H-E-A-D, and you can find me on the website or by email or on our sanctions blogs. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Designated, a Herbert Smith Freehills podcast on sanctions law. If you liked what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. We will have great new guests and discussions on each episode, and we don't want you to miss out. As a reminder, this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. If you would like to learn more about sanctions law or have any other questions, feel free to contact us.